for or while you're looking for, I'm going to be in Luke 6, 21 and 25. If you want to follow me around. Uh, I know there's been a lot in the news about the abortion, but I stand up here on Mother's Day thanking God that my mom decided to have me. So, And uh, thank you for my lovely wife over here who decided to marry a guy with three teenagers and become a mother immediately. And uh, we would later hand one over and give a, one of those childs back to God. So it's also a bittersweet day for some mothers, too. And I know there's a lot of people in here that have, you know, the scripture when we talk about weeping, it uh, kind of goes hand in hand with some people for Mother's Day as well. But I think it's very applicable to many here. I'm going to go ahead and read scripture starting in 21. Uh, Blessed you are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Uh, continuing over to 25 of uh, chapter 6. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Uh, if we could pray. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, uh, we give thanks for your sovereign word. Uh, this word uh, applies to everyone here. Uh, a lot of the people in this church have struggled and wept. And we're waiting for that time that we're all going to laugh, Lord. And we know it because you, Lord, your grace and mercy on us. We pray for this church. We pray for those in leadership. And we pray for the pastor during the service. And we give thanks to all those mothers out there, Lord. In your holy name, Father, amen. Thank you, Jason. Not playing nice. <clears throat> so we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we are in Luke 6, the verses that uh, Jason just read for us. In these verses, Jesus is giving us the definition of a disciple. And he is, as he's doing that, turning us right side up. He's helping us to live right side up in an upside-down world. He has said some very surprising things, yes? Uh, That you are blessed if you are hungry, blessed if you are poor, blessed if you are weeping. And then the next verse says, blessed are you if people hate you and reject you and persecute you. And woe to you, the opposite. Woe to you if you're full. Woe to you if you laugh all the time. Woe to you if you're accepted by everyone, if you're popular. Striking words, powerful words. And again, Jesus is teaching us right-side-up living. He's teaching us the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, as those things happen, as you follow him, it's hard. But know that you are blessed. Know that you have his, uh, his great smile. Know that you have his favor. And this morning, we are on the part about weeping. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I think this blessing and its parallel found in verse 25 has a lot uh, to say to us this morning about the reality of our hearts. Have you ever heard someone say, if you want to know what someone's like, find out what they laugh about and find out what makes them cry. And you'll know that person very well. I think that's very true. And what we laugh about, what we cry about, it's very revealing about our hearts and our 
character that speaks volumes about you. Now that word weep, when it says, blessed are you who weep, that expresses a very strong, if not violent, emotion. As I read about it and thought about it, I, I, I thought about my dad. I only, in my time growing up, I, I saw him cry, but I never saw him weep or sob, save two times. One was when he officiated the funeral uh, for his mom, my grandmother, who, as far as we know, never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he officiated that wedding, or that funeral, and I just remember as a young boy, maybe 10 or 11 or 12, the impact that had on me to see my father sobbing. He could barely get the words out, his hands shaking, his body trembling. That's the idea that's here with this word for weep. It involves the whole personality. Paul uses the word in Acts 21.13 when he's saying farewell to the, the elders at Ephesus. He says to them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? As he prepares to leave them and probably never see them again. It breaks his heart. And so we see that this word weeping, uh, it, it describes the experience of the loss of a loved one or when you're saying goodbye to a, a close friend. It's a sorrow that's so deep and so severe, you cannot keep it hidden. Again, it impacts the whole personality. That's, that's the weeping that our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about in our verse when he says, blessed are you who weep now. So as we think about that, I want to begin by saying, here are things that he's not talking about when he says, blessed are those who weep. I just want to quickly explain what Jesus is not saying. I think we all know, but he's not saying, uh, that blessed are you who weep when you swing the hammer and miss and nail your hand instead of the nail, right? He's not saying that kind of weep. For sure we weep when that happens, but that's not the sorrow that he's speaking about. He's also not giving a cheap platitude. He's not saying, uh, and I know we say this out of love and care, but it, it, I think we can do better. Jesus is not saying time heals all wounds. Just keep going. You're sorrowful now. One day you'll laugh. It's not this cheap Platitude. And can I say this morning that time heals all wounds is not true. God heals all wounds. He is the God of comforts. Uh, time does not heal wounds. It's time plus faith and trust in God that heals your wounds. Jesus is also not saying that you're blessed to always be miserable. And sadly, it seems like some, a lot of Christians are like that, always miserable, always pouting, always upset about something. And there's, there's even a saying that's out there that a Christian is someone who's upset that someone somewhere is having fun. <laughs> Have you heard that one before? Listen, the happiest man never walked the face of this earth was the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we should have joy, sorrowful yet rejoicing. It is not saying, uh, it is not an excuse to always be morose or perpetually downhearted or depressed, filled with sadness. 
Jesus is also not talking about when you are disappointed and you, know, you have these expectations, you're hoping for something, and you're disappointed, and you weep over that. And, and the, the perfect example for that is King Ahab. Remember King Ahab? Uh, twice in, in the biblical record about King Ahab, he is described as being solen. And probably the best picture of that is when his, he wants Naboth's vineyard. Remember that? And he offers Naboth to buy it or to trade for it. Naboth says, no, it wouldn't be right to do I'm not going to give that to you. And Ahab... <laughs> says in First Kings 21.4, he went and lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. He had expectations. He had his heart and mind set on, I want that vineyard. He doesn't get it. He sobs. He has a pity party. He weeps. That's not the kind of weeping that God blesses. What kind of weeping does the Lord Jesus Christ bless I have three of them, if you're following along in in the bulletin. I have three reasons. There's more, but three that we'll focus on this morning. Reasons why disciples weep, why followers of Christ weep uh, now, today, in this world in which we live. And the first one is this. We weep over our sin, over our personal sin. That, of course, touches on uh, the moment of our salvation, We come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Spirit convicts us of sin and we recognize our helplessness and our hopelessness because of that sin. Right? This is where the the Christian life begins. Sorrow, brokenness, contrition over sin. And not sin that's, that's out there, but sin that's in here. That kind of sin. That's what draws us to Christ is our spiritual bankruptcy. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth recorded in the scripture as he begins his earthly ministry is repent. Right? Repent. No one can repent unless they are first convicted of their personal sin. They know that which of which they must repent from. So, so this is where Christianity begins. It begins with this real sense and awareness of our personal sin, our rebellion, and our separation from God, who is life. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says, all are under sin. And the word under carries the idea of being under its power, under its control. A sin is being pictured as a cruel taskmaster uh, who, is, who is controlling us, and we're under its power, we're under its fluent influence. And who's under sin? Romans 3, 9. All are under sin. What is more, the Bible teaches that sin pollutes, sin corrupts, sin compromises. Think of when the harsh chemicals are, are poured into the sparkling river and ruin that river. That's the idea that's there. I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. Imagine that I had up here a glass of white milk, and I was to drop in it a few drops of very infectious blood. That's what sin does. It pollutes it contaminates, it poisons. That's the nature of sin. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan from many years ago, says this, a sin in the Bible is called poison. Sinners are called serpents. Sin is called vomit. Sinners are called dogs. 
Sin is called the stench of graves. Sinners rotten sepulchers or gravestones. Sin is called mire. Sinners pigs. It is defiling. It is degrading. And then he closes by saying, sin stamps the devil's image on the human soul. That's sin. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. And the the truth of our sinfulness should cause us to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. To put our faith and our hope and our trust in him and nothing else. Like we sing, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, can redeem you and cleanse you and purify you uh, so that your sins, though scarlet, can be what? Washed white as snow. I'm sorry to say the word snow on a beautiful day like today. But that's what sin does. And that's what God's grace can do. That's what Jesus Christ can do. I remember at the age of 17, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor, uh, faithfully preached the gospel. He's so-called retired, uh, but still continues to preach and teach as much as he can. Uh, He was in pastoral ministry for 50 years and just labored and labored and labored for the Lord's namesake. Even though I was raised in that family, a very godly mom, a very godly father, I was a sinner who does what sinners do. I rebelled. I wanted nothing to do with the Lord, nothing to do with Scripture. In fact, I hated church. I hated Christianity. I hated anyone who wanted to name the name of Christ. Utterly against it. In total rebellion. And I thought I was happy in my sin, living for me, living for Andrew. And I thought I was happy. And I used to read the Bible, not because I believed it, because I thought it was fun to show my dad how ridiculous this book is. And it was one morning as I was reading from Genesis chapter 3 that the Lord Jesus Christ opened my eyes to see Satan had hooked me and tricked me and deceived me. And the Lord, through the word of God, opened my eyes to see that I was a sinful sinner. That I was living for self, that sin does not lead to happiness. It might be temporary pleasure, but ultimately leads to ruin and destruction, as we've already shared and talked about this morning. And I ran to Jesus Christ in faith. And he saved me. And he will do the same for anyone here this morning. If you're lost in your sin, you run to Jesus Christ. You're seeing by the Spirit as he works in your heart now the the pervasiveness and the wickedness and the awfulness of sin. But then you also see the wonder and the majesty and the grace and the beauty of Jesus Christ who will rescue you from that sin if you will call out to him in faith. Of course, it doesn't stop there. This, this blessing is not merely talking about past tense, you know, when you first recognize your sin and trust it in Jesus Christ, but it's present tense. It does not say, blessed are you who used to weep. It says, blessed are you who what? Weep now. Present tense. Blessed are you who weep now. So weeping over personal sin should be a constant thing in the life of a Christian. James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, has your experience been what mine has been? The, the more you know God and love God and draw near to him, the more you realize how sinful you are and unholy you are, how righteous he is, and just how unrighteous you are? I think that bears out in our text as it says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy 
to gloom. God wants you and I to feel the weight of our sin. And admittedly, that is a great weakness in my own life. And I think in the life of the church. There is very little weeping over our sin. When is the last time you wept over your sin? When is the last time you looked at yourself in the mirror, your sin in the mirror, and you came away broken? When is the last time you felt the gravity of your rebellion against a thrice holy God? Where is this weeping for sin? I think we have lost a deep sense of conviction for sin. By the way, when people today often say what you have said and what you're doing offends me, what they really mean is you're convicting me and I don't like it. All right? Sometimes what we say and do is offensive needlessly, but often they're offended because you're speaking the truth in love and they don't like it. But they don't have a category for conviction. They call it offended. Where is this conviction over sin? 150 years ago, Alexander McLaren said this, a preacher, he said, uh, he cannot too strongly urge upon you my own conviction. It may be worth little, but I am bound to speak it, that there are few things which the so-called Christianity of this day needs more than a realization of the fact and the gravity of the fact of personal sinfulness. He goes on to say, there lies the root of the shallowness of so much that calls itself Christianity in the world today. It is the source, this shallowness, this lack of conviction over sin is the source of almost all the evils under which the church is groaning. And I would give a strong amen to that statement. Again, in my own life, it's true. We find many examples in the Bible of, of godly men and women weeping over their sin. I think of David in Psalm 38, verse 4, who writes, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. In 28.18, uh, David writes, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Job writes of himself, I despise myself in ashes and dust as he comes into the presence of God. Isaiah, remember Isaiah? He's in the temple. He has that, that vision of, of God and his glory. Actually, it's probably the Lord Jesus Christ and his beauty and his glory filling the temple. And Isaiah's response is, Woe! is me, for I am undone. Peter, when the Lord Jesus Christ performs one of his miracles, cries out to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When he denies Christ, we read that he went outside and wept bitterly. Paul himself, in Romans chapter 7, as he talks about the battle uh, between doing uh, what's holy and what's unholy, what I want to do, I don't do, what I don't want to do, I do, right? And then he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? 
And later in 1 Timothy, uh, he's near the end of his life, uh, circling to the end of his ministry, and he writes, I am the chief of sinners. Paul said that. That's the one verse where I want to argue with Paul. No, Paul, you got competition there, and it's me. You don't, you don't hold anything on me. We are great sinners. Where is the weeping over sin today? I know we're quick to confess. I know I'm a sinner. But my goodness, do you weep over that fact? We're quick to confess that I'm a sinner, but do you weep? Over that. We agree that everybody sins, right? Everybody sins, but do you take that seriously? Does that break your heart? Are you sorry for that? Are you repentant over that? I'm very fearful that instead of weeping over sin, we laugh at it. Instead of killing sin, we're often feeding it. Instead of hating it, we often want it. I think if we're often, if we're, if we're honest, we're often prone not to confess our sin, but to rationalize it away, to justify it. I'm very good at that. How about you guys? When I sin against the Lord, I got reasons. I can give them to you. I'm pretty sure that it's right for me, but wrong for you. So deal with it. Right? We all have this inner lawyer within us that wants to rise up and justify yourself. We want to blame others for it. It's never my fault. It's always others. We get defensive, we get mad, we get angry, we we minimize it, we try and cover it up, but the Lord Jesus Christ says none of that will do, none of that leads to blessing. What leads to blessing is, is, is fully confessing and recognizing the wickedness and heinousness of sin and throwing that upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What leads to blessing is weeping over our sin, being broken over our sin. You will never stop sinning. You will never weep over sin until, until you see the monstrous nature of sin. And maybe you're asking, and I, and I, I prayed and thought through this much throughout the week, how, how do I see the monstrosity of my sin? How, how do I learn to see the, the heinousness of my sin? And, and the only thing I can think to say this morning is you need to take a long, hard look at the cross. As you stare at the cross and, and ponder the cross and, and think upon the cross, as, as you see Jesus bleeding on the cross for you, as you see him struggling to take a breath He does that for you. As you hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken for you. As you see him writhe in pain, as you see his body quivering on the cross from the pain, the agony, the horrors of what he's enduring on the cross, what that should do for you and I as we think on that and gaze on that and meditate on that is, is help us to see that's what my sin caused. That's how ugly my sin is and how heinous and awful my sin is. If you would know the awfulness of sin, think hard on the cross. If you make light of sin, you make light of the cross. Vincent writes it this way. He says, A gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me 
would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. The cross exposes how utterly sinful we are. And that's why Paul says, I preach Christ crucified. That's why we have the cross right there. Gaze at the cross, think on the cross, ponder the cross. See the depth of your sin. And weep. Weep. We also weep over living in a fallen, sin-cursed, sin-broken world. My goodness, this world is broken. It is broken. And people think it can be repaired through politics or money or tech or information. But this world is broken by sin. It is under the curse of sin. Why is the world so bad? Because we're sinful sinners sinning against each other 24-7. That's why. This world is under the curse of sin. Of course, it hasn't always been that way. God created the heavens and the earth, and he said that it was good. But it did not take long for us to sin against his will and his purposes and, and, and make it as bad as it is today. And therefore, Romans 8 says that creation is groaning and longing for redemption. Do you feel that groaning yourself this morning for that redemption, that salvation, when all things will be made right? Isaiah chapter 24, verses 4 through 6, the prophet Isaiah writes this, The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Genesis 3, ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled, and we rebelled with them because we were in them, and they're our federal heads, and they represent us. When they rebelled, we rebelled. And the whole world has been in a hangover since Genesis 3. It's the ultimate hangover. I don't know if you had hangovers in your day. Miserable the next day. The earth is still in a hangover from sin. It's spiraling out of control from sin. Everything is blighted. Everything is subject to decay and death. I love how Spurgeon put it. By the way, kudos to Dave for mentioning Spurgeon this morning. That's always, that's always good. But Spurgeon put it this way. The slime of the serpent is on all our Edens today. The slime of the serpent is on all of us today. What a lesson that is. And how widespread and devastating the cancer of sin. Sometimes we think to ourselves, what's the harm of this one little sin? What's it going to hurt, this one little sin? And all of creation is groaning with you. My goodness, look around and see. This is what it leads to. It leads to destruction. It leads to brokenness. It leads to cursing. That one little sin always brings more sin. Wasn't there some kind of chip thing that says you can't eat just one? It's the same idea with sin, right? It never is alone. It's never isolated. And it always brings consequences more than you bargained for. Sin destroys. Sin wrecks havoc. The the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 136, uh, writes these words, My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? What's he say? 
because your people do not obey or keep the law. Do you ever weep like that? Or the lawlessness and the sinfulness and the brokenness that's not just in your own life, but in the world that we're in? The psalmist did. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears. We should shed streams of tears over the injustice in our world. We should shed streams of tears over the anger and the hatred and the violence that fills our streets. We should shed streams of tears, as was mentioned earlier, over the brutal murder of unborn persons in the womb. Since that fateful day in 1973, over 60 million persons have been aborted, ruthlessly ripped from limb to limb and sucked out of their home. That's wicked. And we weep. This week, as I was on social media, I was on Twitter, I saw a picture on social media on Twitter. Maybe some of you saw it too. It's a young woman. I, I don't know. She's maybe 21 or 22. And she's holding this, this, this big sign that says, I wish my mom had aborted me. And you just weep. What has that person endured? To say that and write that. And we shed streams of tears, huh? Our world is broken. People are hurting and hopeless. They have nothing to live for. And so we shed streams of tears over that. We shed streams of tears over broken marriages, over domestic abuse, child abuse, drug abuse, the slave trade industry, just alive and well. We shed streams of tears over war and rumors of war. We shed streams of tears over those deceived by the lies of this world. We, we shed streams of tears over the decay of the church and the decay of our nation. We shed streams of tears with those moms who, like Hannah, desire to have children but are barren. We weep with those who weep. We shed streams of tears with those who have wasted their lives. Uh, in his book uh, called Don't Waste Your Life, Piper opens that book with a powerful illustration speaking about his dad who was a traveling evangelist and would preach the gospel all over the nation, maybe even different parts of the world. I'm not sure about that. But after one of those, he preaches the gospel, and this older man makes his way up the aisle crying out uh, as, as he makes his way up the aisle, crying out, I've wasted it. I've wasted it talking about his life. And we weep with individuals like that who, coming to the end of their life, recognize and realize, my goodness, I've wasted my life. What an awful realization. And we weep. We don't just weep over our own sin and the sin in our world, but we also weep over the lost. There's a story of a church that fired their pastor, and they asked, well, why did you fire your pastor? And they said, well, he tells us every week that we're all going to hell. And they said, well, what about your new pastor? They said, well, he tells us the same thing every week, too. The difference is, when the other guy said it, it seemed like he really enjoyed that fact. 
this new guy is brokenhearted over it. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you what? You care. Paul is like that new pastor who brokenhearted and would weep over the lostness and sinfulness of others. Paul was utterly broken over the rejection of the gospel by the lost. If, if you're quick and want to turn there, Romans 9, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it here, I have it in my notes. Romans 9 is a great example of a Christian weeping over those who are still lost in their sins. In Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, by inspiration of the Spirit, that I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That what? Romans 9 verse 2. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? Why, why do you have such sorrow and weeping and anguish? Verse 3, Romans 9. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's startling language. Notice a few things about that with me. Notice the degree of his brokenness. Because he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. He's consumed with grief and pain and it's flooding his soul. Consider also the duration of his brokenness. Not only is it great, it is unceasing He's unceasingly weeping and mourning over the lostness of his uh, dear brothers, his uh, fellow kinsmen, the Israelites. Consider also the depth of his brokenness, because not only is it great and unceasing, but where is it found? In his heart. Nothing superficial about it. Have you ever wept like that for the lost? For your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, people across the street, the person at the cash register at the Dollar General or the gas station. Whenever I think about this verse, Romans 9, and, and even the one here in Luke, I always remember when I was in college and my one roommate uh, who went on to be a missionary, and it's not surprising. I'm not sure exactly where he is. He's, he's working with people who uh, cannot be named where he's working. Uh, but there was one night, I don't know what time it was in the night, but in the middle of the night, early morning, late night, whatever, I woke up to him sobbing. And I mean like wailing, sobbing, like I've never heard before. At some point, I asked him, what's going on, and why were you weeping? And what he was weeping over was, he has family members who were just utterly lost, utterly in their sin, want nothing to do with Christ. And he was just wailing and groaning and sobbing and weeping to the Lord to please do something supernatural and save them. That convicts me because I've never sobbed like that for the lost. Have you? 
So great is Paul's sorrow that he says in verse 3 that he uh, could wish that he were, was cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. That's, that's startling language because cursed and cut off translates one Greek word, and it's, this, it's the strongest uh, form of saying eternal destruction by God. It's the strongest curse in the Greek language. Paul is saying that he wishes he could be eternally damned if it meant that others are not it's Christ-like love, right? right? The, the embers of Calvary are strong in his heart because that's what Jesus did for us. He faced the damnation that we deserve on the cross so that we might live. And Paul has Christ alive within him. And Paul says, I could wish that I could do that, that I, that I would face eternal damnation if it meant the salvation of my lost kinsmen. Oh my goodness. That's astounding. And by the way, he's saying that about people who did not like him, <laughs> right? They hunt him down. They try and kill him constantly. And he says, I wish I could be damned for you if it meant your salvation. Are you broken over that, the lost? <clears throat> Pretty heavy stuff, huh? <clears throat> well, how about laughter? The promise is... If you weep over your sin and you're weeping over the fallenness of this world and you're weeping over your unsaved uh, loved ones and neighbors and co-workers and enemies, the promise is there is a day coming, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you will laugh. Right? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Praise God that we who weep now over sin and its pervasiveness and its consequences, there is a day in the future when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth when we will laugh and be filled with joy eternal and joy unbreakable. The Bible talks about this constantly. Isaiah talks about it a lot. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 20 promises that your sun shall no more go down, your moon no more withdraw itself. The Lord will be your light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 61.3 promises to grant to those who mourn to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Again and again we read in the scriptures that God will turn our weeping to sorrow, our, our weeping to joy. We read in Revelation twice that God the Father himself will wipe the tears from our eyes. He'll wipe our tears of grief and our tears of pain and our tears of anxiety and our tears of remorse and our tears of shame. He'll wipe them away. Riken writes this. He, he writes it very well. I don't know how anyone can improve upon this. He writes, quote, There are times when life is so full of sorrow that we wonder if we will ever laugh again. But as we weep, we hold on to this promise that godly sorrow will turn to joy. He continues, one day God will take away our sinful nature and we will never sin again. Praise God. One day he will right every wrong and gather his people into his eternal city. Praise God. One day, all our sufferings and sorrows will come to an end. Then he writes this, What laughter will ring through the heavens then? Can you hear that laughter? Can you hear the joy of heaven even now? As we stand in the golden city, 
uh, reveling in the surprise of our redemption, the sudden realization that all our hopes have come true, he writes, we will burst into everlasting laughter and joy. That's the promise. We'll breathe in the happiness of heaven. What a day that will be. As I thought about that and pondered that, I, I asked the question, how is that possible? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the gospel, right? It's possible because Jesus bore our sorrows. He carried our griefs. Right? It says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with our grief, which is staggering because God is a blessed God. He's a happy God. He's eternally happy, but he takes on sorrow for us. He becomes a man of sorrows for us. Isaiah 53, verse 4 goes on to say that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You catch that? Whose sorrows is he carrying? Ours. He's bearing our griefs, our sins. Praise God, Jesus didn't leave us to drown in our sorrows, our grief, our sin. On the night before Jesus uh, was arrested, or on the night when he was arrested, the day before he died, we read in the scriptures that Jesus was sorrowful and troubled and confesses, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And in Hebrews 5, 7, uh, we read that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. You think of his many agonies that he endured. He was betrayed by Judas, denied by a disciple, judged guilty by corrupt rulers, mocked and scourged by godless soldiers, crucified on the cross, forsaken by the Father. He endured all of that, all of those sorrows, that we might find our joy, our true happiness in him. That's how Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 21 is possible. That's why we weep now, but there is a day when we will laugh. But I think I can go a little bit deeper with that. And th this was so encouraging to me on, on Thursday or Wednesday night or Tuesday night. We didn't have growth group. And so I had a, and my wife was sick and the kids were all in bed. So I had a couple hours to just dig in and think about this some more. And I was meditating on this text some more. And I got asking the question, not only how is it that, that Jesus is, is able to say to us, we'll weep now, but we'll laugh. But I got asking if Jesus became sorrow for us, what is it that helped him endure? If he was bearing our sorrows and our griefs, how in the world did he endure that? Right? I mean, like we talked about, we've all had sorrows so deep and so awful, so severe that you, you, you can't even uh, control yourself. It's that severe. It's that violent. How do you take on all the sorrows of, of all of these, right, and endure that? How? Well, the answer is right in our text. He knew there's a day coming when he'll laugh. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What sustained Jesus through his sorrows and, and the weeping was the joy, the true happiness that would be found in obedience to the Father and the salvation of his sons and daughters. So he was weeping, but with eyes set on the joy of heaven that strengthened him to endure the sorrows of this day. That's powerful because that's still true for us today. There is much in this world that breaks our hearts, but for the joy set before us, we press on.
This is the radical reversal I've tried to bring out uh, each week as we thought about uh, these uh, different statements from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in Paul's words, we are sorrowful yet always what? Rejoicing, right? We are rejoicing because of the promise of eternal, unbreakable joy in heaven. We are rejoicing because of sins forgiven. We are rejoicing because of God's sovereignty that works all things together for good. But we are also sorrowful over sin. But we are also sorrowful for this reason. I'm trying to connect the dot to Jesus carrying our sorrows. I think we are sorrowful today too. Because we seek to help others carry their sorrows. And that's Christ-like. Jesus is sorrowful because he's carrying our burdens. Now we have joy in him. And now what do we do? We don't, we don't think about ourselves all the time. We look around us. We look at the people sitting near us and by us on Sunday morning. We think of our neighbors. We think of our coworkers. And we want to what? We want to help carry their sorrows. We're no longer living for ourselves. We, we take on the heart and the attitude of Christ who carried our sorrows for our joy. And so we want to help others carry their sorrows, come alongside them and love them and encourage them and weep with them, give them tissues, help put a shoulder under their burden, right? Help them carry that because that's what Christ did for us. That's what Christ did for us. And so you reach out to the person struggling with addiction. You reach out to your neighbor who's struggling. You reach out to your coworker who maybe their spouse just died. Uh, you try and help your friend who's just snared and, and entrapped with various sins. You come to church weeping with those who weep. The church should be a safe place to cry. Amen? We need to stop coming to church with painted smiles on. Church is a safe place to cry. It should be a safe place to weep over chronic illness. A safe place to weep for many, many, many reasons. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 urges us to help the weak and the faint-hearted with all patience and brotherly affection. This is what it means to follow Christ. We weep with those who weep. We don't turn a blind eye. We don't ignore them. We don't put our head down and walk past them real quick. Whoa, I see that. Going that way. No, we, I see that, I'm going right for that. I'm going to love them and pray for them and listen to them and hug them. Whatever else I, I can do, I'm going to point them to the truth of Scripture when that time comes to encourage them, to help them carry that load. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's the great reversal that the Lord Jesus Christ brings. Turn with me quickly to, to John chapter 11. I, I want you to see uh, an example of how Jesus does this. John chapter 11. And I'm having you turn there instead of me just quoting it to make sure you're awake and you're clicking along and, and tracking. John chapter 11. This is where Lazarus dies, of course, and Jesus raises him from the dead. But I want you to, to catch a couple things here that are pretty, pretty powerful. John 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 32, actually, where it says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was, the ESV translates it, deeply moved. 
in his spirit and greatly troubled. I think deeply moved is too weak of a translation. You might have a footnote there that says indignant, outrage, anger. Why is Jesus outraged? I would suggest to you he is outraged over many things in the context that he's outraged or angry at death. That we live in this sinful, fallen, broken world. He's also angry and outraged and indignant at the grave and sin and unbelief. But it's not blind rage. It's, it's anger, which is a God-given emotion. When we're angry about righteous things, it's a God-given emotion to propel godly actions. And so God is angry, or Jesus is angry, is outraged at the reality of sin and Satan and death and being in this broken world, and it moves him to action. Watch the next verse. He said, and Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. The next verse says, so the Jews said, See how he loved him. Others mocked. <clears throat> so he was morally outraged, right? He's angry, he's indignant, he's deeply troubled in, in his soul, but he's also what? He's broken, he's compassionate, he's, he's loving, he weeps. He doesn't offer up empty platitudes, he doesn't say time will heal all wounds, he doesn't try and disguise his sadness, he cries. He cries because he hates death more than we do. He cries because there's suffering. He cries because the world is not how it should be. And in his anger and his sorrow, he does something about it. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, why am I sharing all this? I'm sharing all this uh, because as we encounter sin in this world, especially the sin of others, and when they sin against us or when you're watching the news, I know you guys, you get what? Mad. I've had some of you tell me that I can't watch the news because I get so angry. I see what's happening in this world, and I'm outraged. And I want to say to you, great, that's good, that's not enough. Jesus was outraged, but he also what? He had compassion. And he what? He wept. Let me just be blunt and direct. Does the current widespread push for the LGBTQ movement, does that trouble you? Does it make you angry? Does it make you weep? Those are the questions, right? Because Jesus got angry and he wept. Don't forget to weep for those who are caught and trapped. <clears throat> we shouldn't be numb to the world around us. We should be outraged, but if that's all you are, it's not enough. You should also be weeping. Weeping. Weeping for those caught up in the transgender movement and the same-sex attraction. Weeping that they're confused, they've been lied to, that the world is deceiving them. And so we should be moved with compassion, not hate and anger. Right? That's what it means to weep in this broken world. A weeping that hates the sin but is moved in compassion for the sinner. 
Bob Kellerman, he's a counselor, he puts it this way, we should get in the casket with them. That's pretty powerful, huh? Get in the casket with them. Challenging text, isn't it? <clears throat> well, how about the parallel? Real quick, the parallel. We'll wrap it up with the parallel. Back to Luke 6. <clears throat> Luke 6, last part of 25. We've heard the blessing for those who weep now and the promise of, of laughter, but 25 nails us where Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Sadly, some people, if not most people, never get serious about spiritual things. So Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. And again, Jesus has nothing against laughter. Jesus was the happiest man to walk the face of this earth. But Jesus, his concern here is for people who live for the laughs and live for the parties. Their only question is, will I enjoy it? They're in it for them, and they're indifferent to the needs of those around them. He's speaking to those who are careless about others and God and their sin and their, their soul, and they have no shame, no sorrow, no regrets over their sin. That, that, that's who he's speaking to. Their only thoughts are this, well, I only live once. Live it up. Right? If it feels good, do it. Don't care about the consequences. Do it. Don't let anyone judge you or condemn you or talk to you or try and help you. Just do it if it feels good. Do it, do it, do it, right? And Jesus says, woe, woe to you that will end in misery and eternal destruction. So whenever anyone tries to get serious with these individuals, they laugh it off, they mock, they scorn, they ridicule, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking on a number of levels. It's heartbreaking because their problem is not that they want pleasure. We all like pleasure. We all want pleasure. The problem is they're looking for pleasure in all the wrong places. And they're looking for pleasure that's temporary. They're letting the idol of immediacy, immediate pleasure, make it so that they're going to end in eternal misery. Man, that's convicting, isn't it? You ever get caught up in the idol of immediacy? I want it now. It feels good now. But you're forgetting about the future and the consequences. And Jesus says, woe. Woe to you. So it's heartbreaking that they are seeking pleasure in all the wrong places. Again, it's not wrong to want pleasure. We've talked about that a couple weeks ago. Find your pleasure in God. Ask God to change your wanter, to want him and his pleasure more than the temporary pleasures of this world.